Hello folks, welcome back to the High Performance Human Podcast. I'm your host, Simon Ward, and each week I'm joined by guests to share knowledge and wisdom to help you on your journey to living longer, living healthier, and of course, improving your triathlon performance. Today, my guest is Daryl Edwards from Primal Play. Now, Daryl and I had so much to chat about that we ended up talking for over two hours. So this is actually the first of a two-part podcast. Daryl's exercise philosophy, as well as his lifestyle philosophy, is all about movement and having fun. A bit like when we played around as children. And in this episode, we have lots to cover. So let's get cracking straight away with Daryl. Well, a very warm welcome to the show to Daryl Edwards from Primal Play. Thank you, Daryl, for coming. Oh, thank you. No, you're, you're welcome. I'm so looking forward to, to having a chat. As I mentioned in our previous chat, I've been highly recommended by Dr. Tommy Wood. He's He's been a guest a couple of times on the show, and Tommy's always great value for money. And he said you'd be exactly the same. So that's high stakes. I, I aim to please. I aim to please. <laughs> like I do with all guests, I had a little look around your website. And uh, the first thing that caught my eye was that you haven't always been in this sphere. You were an investment banking technologist. And then you became a movement coach. That's a huge leap. So I'm interested in how that all happened. Yeah, so um, my time in investment banking or technology was, that was my, you know, technology has been my passion since my early childhood. So I had I had one of the first home computers back in the late 70s into the early 80s, um, spending most of my time playing games uh, uh, until I realized, you know, there was a keyboard for, for a, a reason um, and I could actually interact with that device and and I started programming so I was a bit of a I was a bit of a geek um, didn't realize there was a career in computer programming mm-hmm. but that's that's what I decided to I wanted to do at university so I became a programmer I worked for for Microsoft back in the early 90s mid 90s and back in those days tech wasn't actually paying that well unlike unlike today um <laughs> so i went into banking because that's where that's where the money was investment banking was where the money was and there was a huge investment in technology and, mm. and companies wanted to make more and more money and exploit technology to get there um as part of doing that they pretty much exploited the people who were technologists because, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because for paying people a lot of money they wanted a pound of flesh. And so I was one of those guys who worked pretty much whatever hour was available to get things done, it was highly skilled, it was highly lucrative. The downside to that was after many years of working in that field, having an annual health check and being told I was suffering from high blood pressure, pre-diabetic, pre-diabetic had a really poor lipid profile, so I had uh, increased risk of, of heart disease, cardiovascular disease, um, and I didn't want to take the meds, pretty much as simple as that. I was concerned about the medication, I was concerned about the side effects of the meds, and so was given the opportunity to, to have a, a revisit my lifestyle. So my lifestyle was sleep deprivation, it was having you know Snickers and Red Bull for breakfast, mm. I was very sedentary because I was paid to be sat at my desk and I'd be working from home, get from the office. I'd be, I'd be back at the computer until the early hours. 
grab a couple of hours sleep and then back at it again. So um, I decided to manage my lifestyle in a way that was aligned to improving my health prospects. And I started exercising. That was the first thing I did. I was like, I'm not exercising. I know that's going to be beneficial for me. Let me give that a try. And with a very short space of time, my health markers improved. Can I ask what age um, you started finding that your health wasn't particularly good? That was in my mid thirties. So okay. sort of and- 34, 35. And I'm now in my early fifties. So it's sort of 17, 18 years on from then. So we're talking uh, about, about the early two thousands then. Yeah. So it was about 2004 and- um, when I was given the sort of amber warning that things weren't, weren't looking great. And that, that was the first tech boom then, wasn't it? Really, just after after the first internet crash of the sort of like the uh, Y two K and all of that, and then things yeah, crashed. Yeah. All all of the first lot of internet babies that got all of that sort of seed capital that they spent on Porsches and Ferraris, and then blew it, and then <laughs> went under, and then the next wave came along, you know, and then and yeah, then we, we, we've, and, and yeah, I, th- I think you know the, the kind of property boom um, uh, and, and all the investment that that w- was happening around around property. Mm. Uh, I mean, there's the, the movie The Big Short. If you want to find out a little bit more, just watched uh, it. <laughs> oh yeah, so frightening, fr- pretty frightening. So I, I, I was, I can't say I was directly involved, but I was certainly aware of of the technology that was that was being built to support some of the decisions that were being made. Uh, um, so, so yeah, I was right in the in the in the cut and thrust of all of that, and I had a. A bit of a sea change in in regards to what I wanted to do for my for my future health, uh, and also making decisions around what I was actually passionate about. So I, I as I started improving my health, as people started asking me questions about what I was doing and why, I realised I needed to be educated in that in that field. I didn't really know much about what I was doing or why. I wanted to understand. I became a personal trainer. I became a nutritional therapist. I started to get mentored by different individuals. I recognized that physical activity. I had more of a leaning towards that rather than nutrition, which is what many people were talking about for for improving health. It was all about nutrition. Um, For myself, I was like, actually, I'm far more interested in physical activity because that was my gateway to, to better health. Mm. And that became the gateway to me looking at other areas like sleep hygiene, like nutrition, and so on. Yeah, I I followed a similar path to you, not not necessarily with the health, but but certainly sort of going out of. Yeah, I realised I didn't want to work for a living, and I wanted to work for myself. And I was passionate about keeping fit, and I was doing triathlon, and so the personal training seemed to work for me. And I can remember the you know, the evolution of personal training went from uh, you know. Jane Fonda classes, didn't it, to personal training? But you know, in Yorkshire mm-hmm. here, where people typically have short arms and long pockets, nobody's going to pay. Nobody's going to pay you <laughs> twenty or thirty pounds an hour to go and work out when they can take the dog for a walk or <laughs> run yeah, around the field chasing sheep. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> it's a difficult proposition actually, and yeah. and I think the reason why um, I, I suppose I, I didn't want to become a personal trainer mm. as for a vocation. I originally became a personal trainer because I wanted to learn as much as I could to improve my own physical health. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, recognize there are benefits for mental health, recognize there are benefits for my, for my health, 
uh, recognized that I could actually improve my physical performance and my physical function. Mm-hmm. So I, I suppose it just answered a lot of fundamental questions, which made me realize movement is far more important than me being in the gym and getting fit. It, it's interesting, isn't it, how um, a, a wake-up call like you had with your health leads to something that eventually then just evolves out of a passion into sort of a, a business that now the sort of stuff we talk about movement and what we're going to talk about later is you know very very topical um mm. i think tommy wood's partner in uh, nourish balance thrive is it chris kelly had a very mm. similar health issue didn't it that caused him to go into that field and start working um to help people overcome their own um i think he might have had crohn's disease or some sort of stomach disorder that caused him to investigate more and then start wanting to help people out and tommy's got a similar story himself hasn't he with his um with his cousin that um did he have multiple sclerosis or cerebral palsy um, right yeah yeah he it, told he told me the story on the last podcast we did and it was fascinating because yeah. they basically reverse engineered all of the stuff and tried to work out a way to help this person improve their health without medication yeah yeah I, I think it's you know it's important to have your i suppose your why um and especially if you're if you're making a significant lifestyle change mm. and you want it to be sustainable and to be maintainable um you've you've got to have a strong foundation to to kind of place that upon and for me, realizing I didn't want to be, you know, do something for 30 days and just improve my health markers or get into shape and then think, okay, this is it. I, I wanted to be able to maintain a lifelong relationship with, with exercise. Mm. So at that point, it was just about exercise. Um, and then way before it became a buzzword, uh, movement became important to me because of my interest in, in evolutionary biology. So... Mm. So evolutionary biology was where I started to have this recognition around, you know, why were humans, uh, you know, evolved to perform certain physical functions and physical feats? What was the purpose of that? And it was basically to survive. So um, evolutionary biology, is that a similar field to anthropology or are they totally different? Well, I suppose there were some similarities because anthropology is about the observation of mm. of how humans, you know, live or, mm-hmm. or have have lived, uh, um, and for different species, but as as well. But but evolutionary biology is basically saying how, from a human perspective, how have we evolved as a species? Right. What environments did we evolve in? Um, and bring it to the present day what does science validate about those behaviors from the mm. past and how are they relevant in the present? So, so you, we, a yeah. lot of, lot of stuff on hunter gathering tribes then. And, and, exactly. Yeah. And the stuff that Tommy talks about, you know, um, ancestral man and ancestral living and that sort of, um, yeah, exactly. Field. Yeah. Yeah. So the an- ancestral lifestyle and, and environmental mismatch. So that's, that's really where the sort of, um, the present interest in that is it's not so much thinking, oh, what what did we used to do? But actually, what are we doing today? That is there's a discordance between our modern environment <laughs> and our kind of stone age body. And many, many aspects of that mismatch leads to health issues. So for mm-hmm. example, if we know, you know, we don't have to, you know, we don't have to know anything about evolution, 
we know if we don't go to sleep for a few days, right, we have immediate, uh, you know, immediate issues with that. It affects our judgment. It affects our, our appetite. It can affect our mental health. Um, it certainly affects our physical health. We certainly can't perform well in any arena at all. You know, our body's telling us constantly, you need to get some sleep. <laughs> you need to get some shatai. Mm -hmm. And that's something which is governed not just by societal norms. It's governed by the fact our evolution dictates when we should be sleeping, for what duration we should be sleeping, and so on. Yeah, I'm, I'm just doing a little, well, I'm just, it's not a little, it's a quite an involved deep health course, which is focused on sleep with precision nutrition at the moment. And, you know, I've been, I've been trying to really hone in on sleep for probably the last three or four years. And I'm, you know, when I work with the triathletes, particularly, I'm constantly amazed by this trade-off between trying to get fit for triathlon or endurance sport and sleep. Mm. And so if there's one thing that we can sacrifice in order to do more training, we'll get up early and do more training and have an hour less in bed. And I'm like, yeah, but that doesn't make any sense whatsoever because you're, you're limiting the gains that you're going to get from the training. You, you're actually limiting the quality of your whole life, you know, to, to the things that you just talked about, mental acuity, nutritional and food choices, decision-making, relationships, everything that creates harmony in your life to allow you to um, live life to your optimal is being sacrificed so you can so you think you can run a bit faster. And actually the end result is you probably won't be running a bit faster. You'll just be putting more effort in to stand still. It's, it, it, just, exactly, it doesn't make any yeah. sense, does it? Yeah, exactly. So the, you know, the, the adaptation of physical activity, you know, the, the reason to train is, is the adaptation for that adaptation to occur to improve your part, your performance. Right. Mm -hmm. So I want to improve my aerobic efficiency. I want to increase my VO2 max. And those things come about by, yeah, you've got to do the work, but you actually have to have this period of recovery. Mm -hmm. And part of that recovery is sleep. So you need time for your muscles to repair. You need time to be, you know, for your immune system to be able to restore itself. So if you're constantly just working hard and you're tearing muscle fiber and you're breaking bone as you're trying to build bone density, for example, and you're trying to improve your aerobic capacity, if you don't have this that phase of of restoration, mm. it's certainly going to limit your your gains. It's certainly going to increase your risk of like upper respiratory tract infections, which is a a common sort yeah. of first <laughs> you know early warning that mm -hmm. I'm overtraining. It's like oh, I'm constantly dealing with a a cold that doesn't disappear, mm -hmm. and it's usually because we're doing too much volume. You know, people are doing too much volume. So so certainly for me, I suppose my transition to a, a movement coach came from not seeing fitness for performance because I wasn't an athlete, even though I did spend some time trying to train like an athlete, but I, but I, I, I wasn't an athlete. Um, um, and for myself, I recognized that doing chronic cardio, which is how I, how I viewed mm. doing lots of endurance based efforts certainly wasn't, maximizing or optimizing my 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 health um because of my the type of my per, my personality from banking which is like go 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 mm -hmm. constantly driven you know sleep is for wimps <laughs> you know? oh, wall street you know? <laughs> yeah yeah you know sleep is for wimps you're better off spending more time in the gym right what do you mean recovery days you know keep yeah. working you know um yeah so yeah yeah you're doing high intensity interval training but let's do that with no rest 
right? <laughs> you know, let's forget the intervals. Let's just go go hard all of the time. Mm. So, so I recognize, just like in life, there are these these kind of natural ebb and flow of of forces that dictate the universe, and it's exactly the same for our movement potential. Mm. So, we should be spending. If we think less about exercise and more about movement, which is what I do, then we know that a significant part of our time and effort should be spent in very, very low intensity movement, right? The slowest, very static, right through to the other end of the spectrum, which is very powerful, explosive, Mm. maximal efforts. And we need to be doing everything in between as part of our movement diet. So, I mean, that sort of almost goes back to what we talked about before we started the talk uh, or our conversation about polarized training. It's like very easy, you know, or very hard, which is when people talk about the Kenyan running thing, it's like when easy is easy, it's very easy. When it's hard, it's like extremely hard. Um, Going back to 2004, 2005, when you started taking over an interest in your own health and sort of working out ways in which to do it. I was still in the personal training field then, and from my, from my from my memory of that time, I don't recall there was any formal movement programs out there. People were doing Pilates, people were probably doing mm. yoga, but mm. that that but, but the people who did those were pigeonholed, weren't they? Pilates was like there was the reformer classes, so you had to have an injury and you were doing it because you were rehabbing from something. Yoga was for vegetarians and vegans and people with beards and ponytails, and um, normal <laughs> normal people didn't go to that because so they were a, they were a particular niche, and um. Kelly Starrett probably was still doing CrossFit then, so he hadn't started on his movement program. And mm. so, who did you who did you learn from? Where did you take your inspiration? Because um, it feels like there wouldn't have been anybody that stood out that you could go and ask questions of. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I mean, I I started doing. Uh, well, I suppose my first, uh, you know. <sighs> Yeah, the, 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 yeah. I suppose the, the person, the one individual that really got me interested in thinking differently about movement or exercise was um, was Jim Jones. So, so mm-hmm. J- Jim Jones is a, 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 a gym outfit out in Utah, and um, basically they were sort of very, very early adopter, early adopters of CrossFit. Okay. So back in the early early two thousands. Um, very early adopters. They trained the actors and stunt men and women in the movie Three Hundred. Okay. So, so what ha- actually happened for me was somebody sent me. This is probably about two thousand and four, so um, five. Somebody sent me a video and said, "Take a look at this training program." And so I saw a few minutes of of the the, the movies movie actors in in Three Hundred training. And they were doing things like bear crawls and they were using kettlebells. I was like, I've never seen kettlebells before. What the yeah. heck's that? Yeah. So it was the first time I saw kettlebells. I was just like, I need to start using kettlebells. No idea where, where I can get them, what they are. I need to be doing that. Um, you know, the gym environments were completely different, sparse, like a lack of equipment. You know, they're doing things like deadlifts. I mean, what the heck's that? So Olympic lifting was became an interest. So that made me realize because many of these actors were not you know professional they weren't they weren't professional fitness individuals mm-hmm. they weren't sportsmen or women but they were training that way and and when i looked into the ethos of jim jones it was about exploiting and pushing human performance 
to, to the to the hilt. And that's what that's that fascinated me. Uh, and also there was a breadth of of training. So general preparedness is what they were about. Mm. So they didn't want to focus just on aerobic and aerobic capacity and endurance. They didn't just want to focus on strength. They wanted to focus on power and, and explosiveness. They wanted to focus on balance and coordination and 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 um, you know and maximal strength as well as strength endurance. So there were all these attributes of fitness, and I was like, this sounds a little bit more like it to me. You know, um, prior to that, just to quickly finish on that point, prior to that, I my thoughts about fitness were: if I could run a marathon, I'm a fit person. Mm. If I can do ultra endurance, I'm fit. I had no idea that fitness is about your ability to be able to perform whatever task you want to. And mm. that's where that was my first kind of first pivot in terms of my relationship with, with fitness. So that phrase general preparedness um, sort of reminds me of Eastern European training methods because they used to talk about that, didn't they? They talk about general preparedness. They would have all athletes, regardless of what sport they were in, would, have, would mm. be able to do the basic gymnastic exercise. You would be able to sprint, would be able to swim, would be able to do basic Olympic lifts. And mm. from from there, then from that foundation, you would move on to the specific um, qualities of the sport you were doing. Um, yes, yes, so yes. I, so specificity. Yes. Um, so I used yeah. I used to do I used to do a lot of lifting, and I started Olympic lifting when I was at school because a friend of mine had got into that. So we we were the only ones who were allowed into the gym because he was a British weightlifting champion as a junior. So he was like supervising us, and that that was where my interest came from. And so I learned I learned Olympic lifting. Um, quite early on and then I used to train rugby league players and this what you just talked about their trainers athletes reminds me of the stuff we used to do with the rugby league players quite a bit of wrestling particularly in rugby league you need to turn mm. what, turn somebody turtle so you need to turn them on their back so they can't get up quickly um, mm. there was a lot of tackling but when you were on the ground when you were defending you tackle somebody then you had to get up very quickly so getting from the ground so that, mm. that sort of um one of the primal movement patterns, isn't it, is groundwork and gait and being able to get down and up quickly, which a lot of people yes. can't do and which people lose with old age. We did a lot of we did a lot of our workouts based on movement patterns rather than lifts. So people mm. say, the, the guys would come in and say, I need to do the bench press. And I said, you need to push stuff, you know, because you're not lying on your back unless somebody's on top of you. When you're when you're going to push something, you're moving aside another guy that weighs 200 pounds as you're running past him you need to be able to fend him off at an angle like that so you need to mm. be able to do stuff there you need mm. to be able to change direction quickly you need to jump you need to be able to run backwards so these these are all sort of things that are inherent in animals aren't they changing direction moving slowly but then being able to explode when necessary yes. so I, I suppose if i back in 2004 if i'd taken all of those principles we were using in rugby league i could have created crossfit <laughs> Exactly. And I mean, it's it's a sensible, you know, it's a sensible proposition mm. around, you know, how can we get the average Joe or Jane to improve their all round yeah. physical capability, which means you can't focus on specificity because ah. specificity means you all, you pretty much have to train something exclusively all of the time. <laughs> To be the best of the best, mm. um, and you know that increases the, the, the increases the risk of injury in that particular discipline. You know that's why we have that's why we have all these kind of idioms around like tennis elbow, you know runner's knee. <laughs> you know it's because of repetitive use, repetitive strain, repetitive stress injury. Mm. They're doing the same thing all of the time, and we know from whether it's from young 
young kids to adults who have a broader program who do activities to support the, their main interest yeah yeah it's usually far more beneficial mm-hmm. uh so yeah so that was you know so mark twite of jim jones he was my first sort of inspiration there was a another individual called art devaney who was a um he, he kind of sparked my interest in this kind of evolutionary um reasons for for, for moving uh, and and broadening the type of activities that we that we should be doing. So so I kind of left after a few years, left the CrossFit way of doing things behind, um, and I was driven then to be out more in nature, to mm. to be doing even more fundamental movement patterns. So you know, climbing trees, you know, jumping, you know, lifting not just barbells and, and kettlebells, but lifting rocks and lifting logs yeah, yeah, and yeah. Yeah. balancing on railings and you know kind of uh flirt with parkour for a while and so so I, I i kind of broadened even more my my movement repertoire uh-huh. and bringing it right back to basics the basics of calisthenics the basics of being able to manipulate other objects um interacting with socially with other humans with movement so i started exploring more the playful side of movement which many other disciplines it's all about all about me so it, you know there are many even other systems of kind of primal or, or or kind of animal movement it's all about yeah me doing something there may be somebody else doing something very similar or 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 um kind of synchronized or choreographed but there's very little interaction and so i realized part of my work wasn't just what i was doing as an individual but what i could do as a partner partnership and also what I could do as a group. Mm. And I realized most of my activities were about play. So, so I, I fell in love with movement again when I realized if I just focus on hard work, on working out, I'm going to procrastinate. I'm going to find reasons not to go to the gym. Mm. Whereas when I was focusing on playing, I wanted to spend more time doing it I was able to sustain that kind of love affair and the relationship with my clients changed. So I suppose the real shift to becoming a movement coach and me developing the primal play method was me training one of my clients and my client saying to me, if you think this is so easy, why are you doing it with me? If you think this is so enjoyable, because I'm like, oh, isn't it fun? This is so, you know. And he was like, if this is so fun, why are you just standing there telling me what to do? And I was just like, thank goodness for that exchange. Mm. And from that moment on, I developed activities that I wanted to do with my clients and my clients wanted to do with me. And from that moment on, the clock watching stopped. <laughs> you know, my clients arrived on time rather than trying to shorten their session by arriving late so there's, there's a yeah. few things there's a few things you've touched upon there daryl um yeah. i mean we can let's i'd like to explore this in a little while is it, at what point in our lives do we think that 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 we're too old to play now and we shouldn't be having fun doing stuff because i i love watching when now i remember when i was little and going to the beach and just finding loads of other kids to play football and cricket with and running in mm. and out of the rocks and you know, I mean, we we just kept fit because we were on the go all day. And, I, you know, I mean, it's different these days in society. But when I was, I think I'm about the same age as you, you know, I'm 57 now. So um, 
we were brought up in the same era. Mm. I used to I used to leave the house at eight o'clock having had my breakfast and rushed it down as quick as possible, get on my bike. And if I came home before tea time, my mom wanted to know what was wrong. You know, who had who I'd been in trouble with. And yeah. uh, and we'd we'd stay out all day and now parents don't dare let the kids out of the site. So that, that's one thing. But yeah. when uh, I think when did we when did we lose that that thing about um having fun? Yes, the, yes. The um there's a lot of research about the green gyms, isn't there? And a while back, and you'll probably remember this when you first started out, that doctors and GPs were um, prescribing um, a series of sessions to do some volunteer work, cleaning out hedgerows, you know, gardening mm. and that sort of thing, and mm. um, rather than medication mm. and, and, and for weight loss as well. And, and then somebody decided to research it, and they found that, that actually over a period of 60 minutes, the average heart rate of people doing manual gardening work was higher. They, they had, there was a much more... Um, it was quite cathartic. There was a greater feeling mm. of satisfaction because you can see a hedgerow that was filled with rubbish and all of this is clean when you leave. So you're, mm. you're making an impact on society. And actually people stuck at the program longer than if they went to a conventional gym, um, which, which is really interesting. And it, it reminds me then of a book that I read a few months ago. I don't know if you've come across Burn by Herman Ponzer. And oh, I haven't. Talk, talks a lot about metabolism and sort of maybe changes some of our ideas on on metabolism. But he's spent a lot. Of oh time yes, with- actually no. Oh, I'm glad you've mentioned that because I, I have I have read that book. I do yeah. have that. I have the copy, and I do have a lot of uh, reservations about many of his arguments. Actually, okay, yeah, anyway, oh, okay. So, uh- <laughs> well, maybe we'll, maybe we'll talk about that off air first before we get to yeah. controversial. But, <laughs> but the interesting point is he talks about the Hadza. And the Hadza mm. tribe and the hunter gatherers, and they basically they have to. They're one of the only populations or civilizations in the world now where they have to go out and look for their food, don't they? So yes, you know, yes, honey and yams. So that also bowls away this argument that that you know if you eat lots of carbohydrates, it's bad for your health because probably two thirds of their diet is carbohydrate in some form yeah, exactly. every day. Um, yeah, yeah. So that's that's quite interesting. Um, so yeah, and it, and then it reminds me of my grandparents who they didn't go to the gym but they walked mm. or cycled to work and it was only half a mile, but they did that, you know, four times a day, five days a week. And they had an allotment and they walked mm. to the shops. And so they didn't need to go to the gym, but they weren't overweight. They were just generally fit. And they could, my grandma could get down on her knees when she was in her seventies and scrub the floor and then get up again without any assistance. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this, this proves the point about the importance of maintaining traditional aspects of, of, of movement a- and the issue today is technology has pretty much replaced mm. many of those options you know so you know we have labor saving devices yeah. which mean we don't have to bend down and 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 you know wipe floors b- brush the floors we don't have to go out to get off to get up buy our food and visit lots of different stores to get it because we can now click a button food is delivered so, so we don't have to do as much manual manual work. We don't have to do as much travel from home. Um, you know, we can pay gardeners now. You know, uh, to do to do the do the heavy lifting. You know, we can get removal removal people to to help us move up. You know, there are all these things that we can outsource movement, mm. strenuous movement to other people, and so we're more sedentary than ever before. Yeah, as 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 human as mankind as humankind more 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 sedentary than ever before, less physically active than ever before, and we're we're paying the price. Mm. We're spending more time indoors. 
We have less access to nature. As you mentioned, there were so many health benefits of just getting outside alone. There were benefits of doing exercise outdoors, which can't be replicated indoors. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and that's because of the additional, I suppose, the additional resistance that occurs. So, for example, if you've got, if you're running outside as opposed to a treadmill, you've got the wind resistance. That just that additional wind resistance, mm. the temperature regulation that occurs when you're outdoors, just those two factors alone improve the fitness outcomes and the health outcomes of that physical activity. Mm. Everything else being equal, you know, the kind of you know undulation of the of the surface of the the road or the path that you're running on, rather than being on a treadmill which is fairly kind of uniform. Yeah. That has has a significant impact on how the body moves. And how we become aware of of where we are in space and our proprioception abilities mm. and the like. So there's a there's a whole science on green exercise mm. and the benefits of movement in nature. Um, there's the, there's a whole science around um, more movement and less exercise because if you think about it, exercise was actually developed for sporting purposes. You know, mm -hmm. so whether we think of the the original Athens Olympics, right, um, or gladiators in Rome, it was all it was really about sports. It was really about performance. Mm. That's what that's what it was about. Um, and it's only been fairly recently, 18th, 19th century, where there was this driver in the Industrial Revolution, and people started to leave country, come into the cities, started working in factories, becoming more sedentary, where there were health professionals saying, hey, maybe there's a need for, for exercise, for more uh, kind of structured forms of physical activity because there's an absence of physical activity from our normal day-to-day -day lives. I had a guest on the show uh, some time ago, Dr. Paul Clayton, who had done some research on the navvies, you know, the guys that built mm. the canals and the railways. And he's, I can share the papers with you, actually, because it's absolutely fascinating. I mean, Far from the ill health that we actually think that they had, they were most of them were in robust health. We, we think that they were in ill health because the average age of the population was quite young, but a lot of that was to do with mm. death in childbirth. And mm. it, it was common for a navvy um, to shift tons, multiple tons of earth from below their feet to above their head to, mm. to shovel it onto the wagons that had to drag it away, whether it was um, you know by a, a little rail truck or by a horse. And they would do this eight hours a day for five and a half, six days a week. They would also have to walk to and from the um, place where they were working. So that was probably a couple of miles each way from their digs. Um, the alcohol that they were reputed to drink, they did they did drink quite a lot, but they were drinking mead, which I think was only one or two percent alcohol. So actually, it wasn't that strong. Um, mm. And and they had um, seasonal vegetables and locally produced food, which was cooked by hand, not you know. And yeah, um, yeah. and it actually wasn't as in as bad a condition as people think. And this, but they also used to work like this until they were in their sixties. And I mm. worked on a building <laughs> site when I was eighteen, and I don't think I could have shifted four tons of um, heavy soil then, let alone yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, and I think, yeah. and I think I'm a fit individual. Yeah, yeah, um, so, yeah. I think it's. I, I think it, it's our expectations um, around what people were doing. Uh, what we are capable of doing have just shifted mm. radically, e even within the, the last couple of generations. Yeah, certainly. So, yeah. 
So uh, I'll give you I'll give you one example. I'll give a couple of examples actually. One which will be watch one which will be kind of a segue to our discussions around helicopter parenting around children and and as the, the concern there is now about not wanting our children to be outside playing. Uh, so there was a, a family of four generations and um, looking at childhood play and childhood play in the, in terms of how free range the kids were. Mm-hmm. So, so they went back to the 1920s to kind of great grandfather, eight years old. So they looked at, they looked at the eight, eight year olds from each generation. So this eight year old in 1928 was able to go 10 miles away from home without any adult supervision and back. So that was as far as he could, he could, he was roaming for play, mm. right? <laughs> 10, 10 miles, right? And then the next generation, which was grand, grandparents, that was in the 40s. And that was, I think, six miles. Mm-hmm. They ventured six miles away. The parents ventured a mile away from home. And then the present day, it was something like 300 meters. Yeah. You know, in a cul-de-sac, basically. And um, and they were kind of hypothesizing that probably the next generation is going to be, you know, not even the front garden. So it's probably going to be like two or three meters from the front door. So so that gives you an idea. And you think, oh, my goodness, 10, 10 miles. So, so I certainly remember venturing as, as a kid. On, I mean, that's probably on a bike, actually. Mm-hmm. But I remember venturing probably 10 miles on a bike from home. Yeah. Um, probably about three or four miles on foot from home as a, as a kid. And that was like the wildest adventure you can imagine mm. being that far, <laughs> that far away from home, not knowing where you were just, just out in the, <laughs> just away, well away from home. Um, but so that's one, that's one issue. All right. Secondly, uh, around just very quickly, secondly, around the distances that we've covered. So back in the forties, the average walking distance per day was 10 miles mm. for the average individual in the UK, right? Now it's miles. less. Wow. Yeah, ten, 10, 10 miles. 10 miles. 10 miles wow. a day. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I suppose that's just, miles. that's that's not only walking to work, but that, that I, I thinking about my grandfather, he would walk about half a mile to the factory, but he would come home for lunch and go back again so he'd walk that journey four times and that so that would have been just two miles getting to and from work but then if you collected up all of his footsteps pottering in and out the house to the allotments yes. going to the pub yes. to get to my grandma going to the shops and walking around yeah um 10 miles seems a lot but yeah it doesn't surprise me that it shrunk so much to modern day yeah to modern day where you know it's about half a mile now for, for <laughs> uh, on average for many for many adults which is which is ridiculous because most of that is going to be walking to the car Mm. You know, probably going to the toilet, maybe walking to the local shop, you know. Um, but yeah, there's just been this significant decline in physical activity yeah. to the point where if you say to someone, you know, if you say to some people, oh, um, I'm not going to take the car because it's only a mile or two away. <laughs> most people will go, what the heck? You know what? You're not going to get an Uber? <laughs> I am. Um... Yeah. You've reminded me of a story from when I was a personal trainer. I, I worked in a, a quite a wealthy area of Leeds. And um, during that time, the school that I used to go to, Leeds Grammar School, was based right in the city near the university. But during the time I was working in this um, 
suburb of Leeds. They moved the school. They sold the grounds to the university and then they moved the school to a site out of town. And it was in this locality. Now, most of the parents that I was training had children that went to either the boys' school, Leeds Grammar School, or to the girls', girls school, which were a half a mile apart in the centre of Leeds, and they would drive them in there. Um, when the school moved out, it was probably uh, probably half a mile maybe a mile max you know there was probably mm. a good 400 meters down the driveway to the school there's probably a good 400 meters from the main junction yeah so probably a half a mile to a mile max each way for children and uh i remember one of one of my clients she said right so um yeah my two sons are uh, walking to school now it'll be great for them one one of them was uh, uh, quite a sporty thing and the other one was a little bit overweight and i said well that's going to be great for them you know get going to school every day um, it's a shame all the parents don't do it because then the traffic would be a lot less and it would be a lot safer for the kids. Mm. But they had got some, you know, they'd thought about that in terms of the walkways and the crossings and everything. After a couple of months, I asked her how she was getting on. She said, well, the kids are loving it, actually, apart from when it's in the middle of winter and raining. But she said, I've got an awful lot of nasty feedback from some of the parents who think I'm being cruel to their children by making them by making them walk a mile <laughs> to school every day. And in fact, when they were first walking, the other parents felt sorry for these children, so they would stop and offer them a lift. And the kids were so afraid of what the mum would say, they would get out of the car two or three hundred yards of the house so they wouldn't get seen being getting out. Oh. And I'm like, man, that is ridiculous. Having that to is, walk yeah. a mile. I used to walk a mile to school every day. In fact, I used to yes. run there with my football so I could get there early to play soccer in the playground. To play football, yeah, yeah. That yeah. was just yeah. that was that was just such a sad indictment of modern society. It, it, it is. I mean, and you know, I did a paper round, right? Yeah. And I remember, I remember getting my first paper round. It was like fifty pence or something, and it was then I, you know, then you'd find out from other kids, and they go, "Oh, if you go to Mister Such and Such, he's he's a pound a week." And anyway, so I I, I upgraded, right, to I think it's three pounds a week. Wow. Uh, paper round, right? And I was just like, you know, and they and they said people only last a week or two. Because they just can't, they can't keep, you know, can't continue to do it. I'm like, it can't be, like, it can't be that bad. So I used to have to get up at half five, right? Imagine, yeah. because you'd be doing, you'd be doing like there'd be one home on one street about a mile away. Yeah, right. right? Away, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and then and I'd have to go back to the news agents to get the second bag because I couldn't it'd be too heavy to carry both bags. Yeah. Right. So I ended up walking several miles a, a, a day, but it was worth it to get the to get three quid a week. And um, and then I used to be like, you know what, I can save rather than me using the bus fare to get to school. I'll, I'll walk. So I was about a mile and a mile and a half away mm. from school. Um, so I used to walk there and back. It wasn't questioned, wasn't wasn't quibbled. There were hardly any cars driven mm. to driven to school mm. when I was at school. It was it was a rare it was a rarity um, that kids would be driven to school. Yeah. Um, even if they lived miles away, they just have to get two or three buses. Right. That's that's just how it, that's just how it was back then. Um, yeah. <laughs> you've you've reminded me about my paper round because I had that one house, but it was up a long lane, and there was no after after about fifty yards, I had two houses, and then there was another one. It was about. It was probably about 200 yards, but it was it was like a, it went off to some farm, so it was unlit. Mm. And I used to hate going up there when I first started. Oh, and there was another house, yeah, where I had to go up this muddy track to the back garden to the thing. So <laughs> I used to leave. Instead of lugging the bag, I used to think that there'd be somebody out there to get me. So I used to leave the bag hidden under the trees. 
And then I used to put one paper under each other arm and then I used to run as fast as I could to the house down the lane and back and then pick up the other paper and sprint up the path and back. So there was my interval training every day just to just to escape from the fictitious bogeyman that I'd built (laughs) up in my head. (laughs) But, you know, yeah, yeah. those were fun. You know, I suppose for many people now, they wouldn't regard us as being fun. Right. Or, Or as times that we should be going back, harking back to. Mm. Uh, <laughs> and, and and certainly sort of certain labor uh you know attitudes towards labor especially for children uh were, were questionable for sure so well, so i'm sure it wouldn't be possible now to be doing a paper round that would be five miles round trip and i don't think mine was acceptable <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it was five miles but when you've got little eggs it certainly seems like five miles doesn't it yeah it if seems, went, a, lot. It seems if, a long way if i went back to that village now and walked around as an adult i probably think i don't know what i was complaining about but the bags were heavy as well weren't they With yeah the, the bags were heavy yeah because um, i couldn't i had a bmx and i couldn't even i couldn't even use the bmx because it was that it was that heavy i was like i can't you know that oh, i was right. like yeah i'll just use the bike i was like why are people complaining you know, the first day you're like, oh, hold on a second. I, I'm, <laughs> every time I literally <laughs> pedal, I'm about to fall off the bike sideways. Um, but um, yeah, there's, there's certainly public attitudes, societal attitudes have changed to the amount of movement our kids are getting, which mean that we rely pretty much on what kids are getting done at school for PE, mm. or we rely on extracurricular activities, like structured activities where we can drive our kids to after school clubs. The downside is the recommendations of movement for kids of five and above is one hour a day of moderate intensity to vigorous intensity activity. Mm. Um, most kids are not getting, getting that time of, of physical activity. So there's a deficiency in the bare minimum of movement for health for our kids mm. from the youngest of kids, right? If you're less than five, you should be getting three hours a day a very vigorous activity. And that includes, you know, the, the sort of the climbing that, you know, on the monkey bars, the jumping, the kind of the really vigorous stuff that they should be doing, the play fighting and the wrestling and, and all of those activities, which are now in many respects are kind of frowned upon. Um, so we're setting up our kids to health issues as adults. And even for myself, I'm thankful because I was a very sedentary adult for a significant part of my formative years as an adult I'm really fortunate that I had that childhood mm. of significant activity because otherwise uh, you know I, I I wouldn't be able to to make, maintain you know most of that muscle memory for me was basically built in childhood and in my you know early teen years that's where most of my kind of physical activity adventures <laughs> certainly certainly were so, yeah you know it's interesting when I think back to when I was at school we used to play uh, so I used to run to school with a football as I said um, mm. and it was probably half a mile from my house um, we play football so you're dodging around it's a little playground so you're learning all sorts of tasks as well as there's, there's that whole community isn't there there's a team building you know picking teams who do you want on yeah. your side who don't who's the weak link who's who's going to go in goal um, yeah yeah uh, and then we used to play, um, when we didn't have a football, we used to play British Bulldogs. And I was always good at dodging, <laughs> dodging around. The the, yeah. other, the other school, the, the first 
junior school that I went to when I was four, we um, we had a playground, but we also were lucky enough to have some woods. And so we were constantly running in out of the woods. And I think nearly every week I was in at the matron's room because I'd fallen out and I'd got a bloody nose or split my lip. <laughs> and the, the teacher said to me, we're going to have to do something about Simon here because he's always in there. And my mum's like, oh, it'll be all right. You know, I, I don't, I think I was always getting in trouble because the knees on my jeans were always coming through because I was always <laughs> kneeling on the floor. You know, yeah. I don't, I don't think a, a week went by when I didn't have plasters on my knees or on my elbows, but that's, you know, I just thought that was part of growing up of wrestling, mm. like you say, climbing mm. trees, falling out of trees, learning that things hurt if you weren't careful. Um, exactly. Yeah. Risk, you know, learning about managing risk, calculating risk, yeah. having discussions with your peers, um, that there's, you know, there are significant issues with emotional health mm. and sort of social health for our for our children, because many of the many of the circumstances which mean we can develop social skills to resolve conflict, for example, mm. those are those are, have been eroded. That we, there are less opportunities to do that because either adults step in, or or many interactions are becoming more you know, um, technology-based, um, you know, you, 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 everything is kind of leveled and equalized so that I may not be able to piggyback carry the kid who's two years older than I, for example, right? In my local park, we wouldn't all be 10-year-olds playing. There'd be, you know, there'd be the big, big kids, that, you know what I mean? That you'd, yeah. you'd be terrified of. There'd be, you know, who you'd want to be be with. There'd be the younger kids that you'd be kind of nurturing, and they'd be they'd be watching you. So there's a different social dynamic when adults aren't around. Kids are left to their own devices. And back in the fifties, so so again, looking at the history, I'm really interested in the, in the history and, and, and mm. of play. Um, there were public service announcements back in the fifties, right? Talking about the fact uh, parents are becoming too protective of their kids. Wow! Back in the fifties, <laughs> and, um, and I remember seeing one advertorial of a, a mother looking out of her window at the, the, the next door neighbor's kid who was climbing onto kind of the 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 outdoor got you know outdoor uh, shed or something you know. So they climbed out of the bedroom window onto the shed. <laughs> <laughs> and then down into the garden and they were they were like balancing on 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 the kind of garden fence you know and and the, the the mother was alarmed and she went to the neighbor and said oh my goodness i saw your johnny climbing out of the window and and the other mother said oh he, he's just playing you know he's okay he's playing and and the the end of that that kind of advertorial was basically advocating that mm. that was okay so that was the kind of british government <laughs> advice for for kids to take part in risky endeavors, not to have to be supervised all the time, just let them go and be kids. So I think mm. maybe, maybe because of the second world war, you know, there's probably a bit, a bit more protection perhaps, right. More concerned about the, the yeah. You know. but, but yeah, coming out of that, the government was like, let's get kids doing what they they've always done. Mm. Um, so, <laughs> at what, at yeah. what point in our lives then do we lose the ability to play like children and have fun and laugh? You know why? And why do you think that's, yeah. Is it part of growing up? Are we told that we need to be more grown up, or do we? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, away, and when did that? And when did that start? I mean, has it always been there? I think it's always been there, for sure. Uh, um, because it's about you know, it's about conforming 
to what society views mm. you should be doing as adults. So if you think of the very youngest of children, if you're a parent, you're doing all you can to encourage your kids to move. Mm-hmm. You know, stand. I want to see you stand. I want to see you walk. You know, oh, they're running now. They're crawling. They're celebration. But then there comes a point in time where you go, you're crawling a bit too much. Get off the floor. Get off your knees. You're walking, you know, outside of where I feel comfortable. <laughs> get back here. You know, let's sit you in the high chair. Let's put restraints on you. I mean, don't, you know, they weren't a thing when I was a kid. You know, now, now, now kids have got restraints on them, uh, you know, almost like leashes on them now. Hmm. So, so, so I think society basically says you're not a kid anymore. We don't want you to be exploring the world around you. We're not going to celebrate that anymore. And so we conform. You know, you, mm. you go to school and you're told, we want you to sit down for the majority of the day. If you're in a school that values physical activity, you may have regular classroom breaks. You may have, you know, lengthy play times, morning, afternoon, lengthy break in the, during the middle of the day where you're outside playing and working off your, your nervous energy. But there are other schools where it's like, you get outside is literally like you peek your head out the door back in for, for schoolwork kids. So, so um, that's what the, that's what the issue is. And that's why there's that, there's that expression, which I think comes from George uh, Bernard Shaw, I think it is um, around, you know, do we stop playing at, you know, because we, we've, we're old or do we get old because we stop playing? Mm. Um, and I certainly believe that kind of premature aging is because we decide, oof, I'm too old to play. I'm too old to do things that people are going to judge me. Yeah. Or if I'm, if I'm in the gym, I shouldn't be having a smile on my face, right? I shouldn't really be enjoying this work. Yeah, yeah. I should be grimacing. I should be punishing myself. Um, you know, I shouldn't be smiling. I shouldn't be having fun. It should always be serious. Do you know yeah. some of the some of the most successful long distance triathletes, particularly female triathletes that I've known, um, have one thing in common. They, you, you often see them smiling when they're running and it's Great. not, a, it's not yeah. a grimace. It's a smile. Um, yeah. Chrissy Wellington, Natasha Badman, Lucy Gossage, you know, they're always smiling and they always look like they're having fun out there. And when you talk to them, they are always having fun and, and people always say, Oh yes, Chrissy smiles and Lucy's always laughing. And, you know, she always looks like she's out playing, but but Lucy does play. And I mean, she's a cancer research doctor, so she's got a lot to be serious about. So you can mm. see why she wants to have a bit of a smile and fun when she gets out into the fresh air. But yeah, um, uh, tell me where you got into the animal moves in, Daryl. Yes. And, 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 the, and the whole primal play thing. And when did that start to become something that you realized um, y- you could actually monetize and um, turn it into a business on its own, aside from just sort of offering personal training stuff? Yeah, so Primal Play came about, Primal Play Method, was when um, I had, you know, I had an injury and I was I was recovering from an injury um, and I remember thinking, I just don't really want to do this anymore. I don't really want to exercise anymore. Even though I'm paying for a gym membership, I don't really want to go. I, I was, you know, I'll go next week, I'll go next Monday, but I'll go next month. <laughs> um, and I was questioning why, even though I had a, remarkable transformation physical transformation fitness transformation was far healthier than ever before why didn't I want to continue doing it and when I was like running through a list of reasons as to why that was 
I realized I didn't enjoy, I wasn't enjoying the process. Mm. I would only enjoy the end result. I would only enjoy me seeing progress in terms of, oh, I'm lifting heavier, I'm running faster, I'm you know, reducing my time in such and such, whatever the metrics were, that's all good. But the getting there, I really hated most of that with a passion. So I was the grimacer. I wasn't smiling. I wasn't having fun because I thought there's no time for fun. It's all, this is all about hard work. But it was, it was, it was detrimental for me because I didn't want to continue doing that. So I asked myself, when was the last time you loved exercise? And that was a never for me when Mm -hmm. I asked myself that question, I've never loved exercise. So then I was like, okay, what, what about physical activity? Okay. Yeah. There's, there are quite a few things I do enjoy in terms of physical activity. When, when was most of that period in time? Most of that was when I was a kid. So I pretty much loved anything that I did physically as a kid, except for PE. And for when I did PE at school, the best time was always end of term, where the teacher said, you can kind of do what you want. And you can play British Bulldog and you can play tag and you can, you know, um, you can play all these games that you've never been able to play all year round in school. You can pretty much do whatever you want to. That's when I realized I need more free form activity in my life. I need to create an environment whereby, you know, if I'm in a, you know, when I was in a nightclub in my 20s, I could dance for hours and couldn't care less. And all I would need for energy is, is you know, some water or whatever, or alcohol, I admit. But, you know, I was like, don't need much, don't need to kind of pre-fuel myself, post-workout, <laughs> nutrition. Like, I'm dancing all, all night for hours and not getting muscle soreness the next day. You know, what's all that about? Mm. And, and so I was thinking, well, hold on a second. That was a significant amount of aerobic work. I was able to do it. I wanted to do it again the following night. Um, and the, the kind of nucleus of that was certainly joy. That's all it was. Wanted to make me continue to do it. And so I wanted to recreate that with a, an exercise regimen or movement regimen. Mm. And that's how Primal Play came about. What could I do to make what for many people is a difficult pill to swallow, this exercise, which is beneficial? Mm. How can I make it more palatable? Mm-hmm. How can I make it more meaningful so you want to continue to do it? And how can I do some of the things I did as a kid and not just think, oh, you know, I wish I was young again when I had all boundless energy and I, and I was just crazy and didn't really care what anyone thought. I want to do that now as an adult. So I had this period of time from maybe 14, 15, where I last climbed a tree to, you know, in my 40s going, I'm going to start climbing trees now. You know, I'm going to start, you know, doing pull-ups on the bus shelter. I'm going to be sprinting against the bus. I'm going to be balancing on and hopping on bollards. I'm going to be bear crawling down the down the high street. I'm going to do whatever <laughs> I want to do because I want to. I want to have fun. So that's what I started doing. Um, then clients became clients because I saw adults watching me in the park, going, "What are you training for? Why are you crawling on the ground?" Why are you jumping over park benches? Like what, what kind of, you know, what are you training for? And I'd be like, oh, I'm training for life. I'm just, I'm having loads of fun. And, what? and so clients were like, you know, do you have, do you accept clients? Or do, is it, do you do this for, yeah, oh, yeah, I do this for a living. I should be advertising this, but yeah, that's, <laughs> this is what I do. So my early clients came out of people going, I would love to do what you're doing and you're going to give me an excuse to do it. 
Uh-huh. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I would love to do that. But if I'm doing it with you, then it's okay. And then I started having groups of people and we'd be the crazy ones or bear crawling down the high street and bobbing and weaving between people <laughs> like big kids. So yeah, that was the that was basically how Primal Play and the Primal Play Method came about. Okay, so that's really interesting then, Daryl, that you've got all of these clients that are coming to you because they've seen you're a bit crazy, but they actually secretly want to be crazy too. And, you know, there's safety in numbers, right? Because if you're doing it on your own, people think you are a crazy. If you're doing it with somebody else, they must you must be doing it for a reason. So you've got all these people now becoming part of your tribe and your community and helping each other along and getting a sense of belonging. In a business sense, did you find that because people were having fun, they stayed with you longer as clients than they would have done if you were working out with them formally? Yes, for sure, uh, because they were, they, were, they were having fun. And, and part of the feedback that I was, would be getting would be, I'm really loving the sessions. Time flies by. Mm-hmm. So as I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the clock watching stopped. Mm. You know, I've had sessions where where the clients would go, oh, you know, is it is it over? You know, <laughs> you know, which I would never have from my previous sessions. They can't wait for it to to end. Yeah, yeah. Um, I certainly also participate far more. So I'm like, I can't just. I'm not just going to watch you do this. This is this is actually fun. I want to be taking part. So so it, it was a natural sort of evolution mm. for me to be more engaged with my clients wanting to take part, um, then creating kind of partner-based activities so that it was an even more natural kind of exchange of, of movement and movement ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that helped me feel confident in developing this system. So I wanted to underpin what I was doing with some science. I didn't want it to just be aimless. Hey, let's just, you know, let's just blow up balloons and roll down the hill and say we're having fun. I'm like, no, I've got objectives. My clients have objectives. They have goals. So how can I make sure I can keep this really playful? But if a client says to me, oh, I want to be able to, you know, perform better on my five-a-side football, I don't want to be doing five-a-side football with them. So how can I get them to play more in in our sessions but be able to perform better, say, in five-a-side football? So those are the questions that I ask myself. Hmm. Um, and developing this system and and finding clients who where there was an affinity so you know you know you realize who your clients are not you know because you want to appeal to everyone at the beginning like oh i'm i just i i want to work with everyone i can help everyone yeah yeah and then and then you realize no 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 i have a specific clientele who seek me out because they're like i'm bored with working out or i i try working out and and i just can't sustain it Maybe your play thing might be might work out for me, <laughs> um, and that's my aim. Okay, so tell me, uh, what would a typical session look like then if you were with a client or a, a group of clients? So, or or isn't there a tip? Well, maybe is that yeah. where I'm going wrong because there isn't a typical session. Yeah. So, so I suppose with if it's a one to one, if it's a one to one client, um, you know, there's there's more planning involved. There's, there are more objectives that the client wants to wants to meet uh, and so there is a stru- there is a, a loose structure involved to ensure that we do have some measurables that they can see that they're paying me money and actually getting something out of it right for for my group based clients it really is trying to recreate that childhood experience of let's go out and play right and so 
when I, you know, when I'm doing kind of weekly sessions, when I was doing weekly sessions on a Saturday morning, it literally would be like we meet at this time at the park bench, and you have you're going to have no idea what going to, what we're going to do, and we and I'm literally going to improvise for for the next hour, and then usually at the end of the hour they're like I'm like oh guys we, we're done right, but if you want to stay and I'm staying in the park, you want to carry on, and so we'd have like two sometimes two or three hours. Of, of these adults kind of like I don't want to go home you know it's, it's, again it's, it's this it's this adult form of that childhood experience of where you're doing things which are childlike not childish you're doing things which are childlike and so many games and activities you see on my website like I have game versions of tag I have versions of 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 kind of wrestling that are very accessible of kind of roughhousing as it's called in the in the US and play fighting. So these are the sort of activities that I've incorporated into, into this system of, of movement. I get people climbing trees. I get people to buddy up, you know, the ones who don't want to climb. It's like, okay, well, you can assist somebody climbing, right? The people who don't want to balance on a railing, okay, maybe you can support someone. Maybe you can spot somebody who's trying to walk on a railing. So it's 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 a it is a community, I suppose a social engagement where it isn't about competition. It's more about cooperation and collaboration. Uh, so yeah, it took a while to develop that, 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 that approach and to realize there's safety in numbers. I suppose there's also wisdom of the crowd. You know, we're doing this because we want to have some fun, but you want to feel as if you've achieved something today. Right. So, um, yeah, that, that, that was probably the, the most exciting part of the evolution of primal play, of like figuring things out right at the beginning. You know, this work, that doesn't work. Um, people aren't coming the following week. Maybe that's not a great, <laughs> you know, maybe that was the great idea. OK, let me let me weave into this something that's going to help people continue to come along. So, yeah, I had I had people attending for years and years. I've had very, very long-term clients on the on the back of that. Excuse me. I remember I stopped in the Isle of Man with a friend, and we went for a run through the woods. And uh, as we got halfway through, there was a whole load of logs that were stacked up, and there's a big sign saying, don't mess with the log, stacked up logs. So obviously, being the child, the child in me <laughs> says, there's a sign there that says we shouldn't do this, so let's do it. So we picked up this log. It must have weighed about, oh, I don't know. 50 60 pounds but it was it was mm. eight or ten feet long so it was a bit unwieldy so we got an end each so i said right mm. well let's let's do the opposite so if i push to the right you push to the left right let's both turn around and carry around this circle right let's do squats together right let's pick it up and push it overhead and do squat and press you know okay mm. right um okay that's hard work let's let's run up to the top of that hill now and let's carry one of these things up and then let's see if we can roll it all the way down again or um you know and we well, I was absolutely shattered by the end of it. We probably didn't, <laughs> yeah. we probably didn't do a great deal of formal running, but I, yeah, I would say yeah. if, I'd, if I had been tracking my heart rate, it would have been pretty high, and it certainly felt like a good all-round workout. And, yes, yes. You know, we did, there was a lot of laughing, and we were outside in the fresh air, and so there's like ticking all the boxes there of mental health, physical health, you know, all of the different aspects of health that you've talked about, proprioception and balance and coordination and teamwork and strength and endurance and you know everything in one workout i mean and everything in between yeah and laughter yeah. interestingly there's a, yeah. there's a there's a study on laughter 10 minutes of laughing yeah um 10 minutes on a stationary bike you bought you burn more calories 10 minutes of laughter yeah i, I mean a station bike is kind of moderate intensity so it's not you know it's 
it's very you know uh, relatively easy pace mm. but it's incredible that just engaging your diaphragm and all those facial muscles and you know getting those belly laughs in makes such a huge difference so it's so there's the you know imagine you're working mm. you're working harder by having that laughter and thinking to yourself oh my goodness what am i why are we doing this we're having so much fun we almost shouldn't be we almost feel guilty for having this much fun mm. when we should be really serious and working out uh, but yeah why not have fun so you know? uh, um you've got this thing called animal moves now i'm familiar mm. with animal flow and you've mentioned bear crawls yours is different to that so for for people who may have been familiar with that other form just explain what what yours is that's different and then just tell me about the evolution of the animal moves as well from your perspective yeah, so the, the so the concept behind animal moves, which is part of primal play, is this recognition that humans are animals. Humans have have particular movement capabilities, which, as a specialist of movement, are pretty poor. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So, for example, you know, ants can lift a thousand times their body weight. A flea can jump a thousand times its 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 uh, you know size in terms of distance. You know, sp- you know, cheetahs can sprint. 65, 70 miles an hour, you know, so Usain Bolt is pedestrian in comparison. Mm. So, so when you, when you, when you compare yourselves with other species in terms of our movement capability, not that great. (laughs) Probably the only thing that we, we have a mastery of is walking very, very long distances. We're pretty much at the the top of the spectrum for, for that um, top of pyramid in terms of that, but for everything else, we're pretty poor. So where humans are most powerful is our, flexibility and adaptability so we can climb and lift and carry and jump and walk and sprint and run and crawl and and there are all these movement patterns that we can engage in but many of us don't we pick one or two areas and we go okay i love lifting that's what i'm going to do you know or i love running or i love the bike that's what i'm going to spend most of my time doing Mm -hmm. so for me it was it was basically creating this general preparedness by looking at the animal kingdom for inspiration. So I want to jump like a kangaroo. I want to crawl like a bear. I want to sprint like a cheetah. You know, I want to climb like a monkey. I want to perform all of these activities as poorly as I may do as a human being, Mm -hmm. but I still want to engage in those. And by doing so, one, you're covering a significant base of fitness and fitness capability, but also it becomes more varied and more interesting. And, and you're working your body in ways which also challenges the mind. So it becomes more mindful and you're building in this kind of coordination aspect, which is, which is quite a challenge. You, you incorporate some balance and agility yeah. uh, as well. So that was, the, that was the kind of premise behind animal moves. And I suppose where it differs from something like animal flow, animal flow is very structured sequence of animal forms. So you might go from one animal form to another, and it's this very kind of beautiful choreographed way of, of movement. Um, for me, my sort of movement is less choreographed. It's actually more about how you feel in the, mo- in the moment. It's about the environment that you're in, right? So I should be able to do animal moves in my living room, in a gym, out in the woods, out in my local park, to utilize the the, the the equipment that I have, <laughs> you know, around me to be able to take part in that. So it adds a, a, a sort of a greater repertoire of movement opportunities. There's a greater amount of interaction that you have with the world around you. So that's where I would say 
animal moves differs fairly significantly to uh, animal flow. Yeah, and let's face it, if you're in your own home and there's nobody watching, why can't you crawl around on the floor? I mean, it's your house, right? Yeah, <laughs> you're exactly, setting, exactly. You're, set, you're setting the rules. I mean, I'm probably going to go from where I'm stood now, and we'll talk about stand-up desks in a moment because that's uh, something you and I are passionate about, I think. I'm going to walk from here, and I'm going to go up the stairs, and I'm going to do something upstairs in my office or get some clothes in the bedroom. But I could, I could find different ways of going up those stairs that, yes. that utilize my body in a different way other crawl. than just walking, yeah. couldn't I? Yeah, crab walk, bear crawl, crawl, bear crawl up the stairs. Yeah. You know, is <laughs> a, a challenge. At your standing desk, stand on one leg like a crow, yep. you know, for, for a minute or two, which I'm just, I've just decided to do now. So Me, me too, know, but one of us is going to fall over like a tree. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of proprioception happening, right? We're kind of multitasking, so we're having this conversation. I yep. can feel a lot, of, a lot of movement in my ankle that's supporting mm. my, my, my body weight. It's, it's quite a challenge, even just doing that. And again, cranes, they balance on one leg for hours. It's like effortless for them to do it. We try it, and it's like a, it's a struggle, right? So this struggle, taking part in movement that you're not familiar with, mm. and considering that when you were a child, without being invited to do so, you would have you would have seen the world around you and you would have gone, I want to crawl like a bear. You know, I want to be, I want to wave my arms like a bird. I want to pretend that I'm an elephant with a with an elephant trunk. Right. It, it's it's na- it's so, such a part of, of, mm. of innate nature for kids to do this, right? And I and and what they're I suppose what they're trying to tell us is that they want to get in touch with their instinctive driver to move and so for me embodying these animals it enables me to sprint faster mm. right you know when i sprint i think yeah I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna sprint like a cheetah right so i'll either do that on all fours which is horrendously slow but i give it a good whirl or i do it the human form bipedally and i really really go for it and i i create real world objectives so one game i'm going to share with you which <laughs> don't try this at home folks but one game I do with my with my groups is something called Chase the Jogger, right? Mm. So, so if we see a jogger a few hundred meters away, we'll decide they're the gazelle, we're the lions and lionesses, and we've got to chase them down. We <laughs> we we tend to stop sort of 10, 20 meters away from them so we don't give them a fright. <laughs> um, but it's really incredible. One thing you notice is even when somebody's jogging and they're not that far away and you're sprinting flat out, you, you assume it's going to be so easy to catch them up. You're like, mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look at them jogging really slowly, 300 meters away. <laughs> we'll catch them in no time. You're sprinting and going, I'm going to run out of steam. You know, it's really hard work. There's a purpose behind this. I really need to get there. So you can, you tend to max out <laughs> max effort. You're laughing as you're doing so. So I don't tend to sprint, do sprint training and laugh. But when in that environment, when there's a group of you running flat out, and you're like, come on, guys, we've got to, we've got to get to that jogger. We've got to chase the jogger. Um, but yeah, those are the, I suppose that's sharing something that I wouldn't normally share outside of, <laughs> outside of the confines of my group. But it's just so much fun doing something like that, encouraging your, groups, your group to, to sprint 
where they okay. probably wouldn't wouldn't want to do sprint training um, there's, there's, having lots of fun there's a lot of our listeners are triathletes so if they're running around richmond park next and they see a horde of <laughs> a horde of people sprinting after them they'll know where it's come from <laughs> yeah yeah and they'll and they'll be able to get your contact details off the bottom of the show notes okay so you've you've um you've done you've also done a little publication called my first animal moves which I presume is for the younger generation. So you've almost gone full circle. Things you love to do as a ch- child, and now you're introducing stuff for children. So is that is that a kickback at this whole protectiveness of parents that they're not letting kids play as normal, and you're wanting to try and encourage that and give them something structured and formalised? It, it is actually, yeah. That the, the whole the whole reason for that book and the story is about a boy who is addicted to screens. He just wants to spend his time. We, you know, playing with screens and uh, tech devices, the thought of going outside to play, like what, what's that? I have no idea what that is. So the book encourages Nathan to explore moving like animals. He goes on this adventure in the animal animal world uh, and he does all of these animal moves and he kind of comes back going, yeah, it's okay to play with my, my iPad or whatever, but actually there are all these other things that I can do which involve my body moving in a way that is uh, is natural and beneficial for me. So, um, so yeah, I produce products. I have cards, um, you know, movement cards for adults uh, as as well as for kids. Mm. So I've kind of created a suite of products to to help kids of all ages explore this more playful side to their movement. I've just uh, had a thought. Daryl, when when we do our teaching to the British Triathlon coaches, we often get them to um, get what we call mood cards in the morning. And, Mm. you know, there's all sorts of these little pictures and they have to pick one up that sort of emphasizes how they're feeding on that morning. I might get some of your cards and introduce those to the group and say, I want you to pick one of these and go and do this movement now. And and, and whenever I blow the whistle during the day or you you say, when I say there's a coffee (laughs) break, you're going to do these moves. And then every time you've done one, you swap it with somebody else. So you, you each mm. doing the moves to everybody else. So throughout the day, we're going to have, we're going to have one minute of exercise per hour. So you're not constantly sitting down and you're going to go somewhere within the classroom and practice this move for a minute to give you some exercise. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a great, that's a great idea. Kind of like, like you kind yeah. of tag team by yeah. swapping the cards over. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, I think just it, it's great for adults to explore yeah part of play is about exploration and most of the where most adults go wrong is we like to do what we know we're good at Uh and we like to stay within our comfort zone Uh and as soon as you go hey try something new you're like you when you kind of weigh up in your mind you go hold on a second let me just check is this on the list of things that i know that i'm good at or not and if it's too far down that list of things I'm not good at, you're like, you know what? No, 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 no. I, I'd rather do something else. That's that's better use of my time. But if you're a kid, most of the time you go, oh, it's something new. <laughs> no, it's something exciting. Let me try doing that. And that's something that I would advise anyone to do mm. with fitness. Do something new. Explore what your body's capable of. Embrace your frailties as well as embrace your, your, your strengths. Um, and find ways to navigate around those. Ah, oh, something was on my mind there, and it's completely gone now. So we'll come back to it. I had a great idea for your cards. When we when we talk later about how to incorporate it into your daily life, I've got. If you haven't thought of it yet, I've got a good use for your cards that um, that the listeners can use. So, um, 
you've done a TEDx talk. Now that's on one of my that's one of my bucket list things. So the first thing is, how do you get invited to do a TEDx talk, or do you apply? Yeah, so I, I was actually contacted uh, by somebody who was hosting a, a, a TED event. So um, I still had to, you know, you still got to kind of a, a, a apply. Um, but they said, oh, yeah, we've seen you talk and, you know, we like what you do. Do you want to submit? There's like a, you might have to wait two or three years. <laughs> uh, and, and fortunately, I, I got through for that, for that year's event. So it was just by, you know, luck uh, and um, and a bit of good judgment, I, I suppose, by the by the person who who, who uh, contacted me. But um, yeah, that was that was my on my bucket list. I it was really challenging. Um, I, I I I was going to say I wouldn't want to do it again, but I'm lying. I would love to do many more of them. But it was the most challenging speaking. Hmm kind of event that I've ever done. Um, the, the levels of nerves, the fact that you feel I've only this this is what I've got one chance at this. I've got a live audience that I've got to appeal to and hopefully get them engaged and excited in what I'm talking about. I can't make any mistake. I, you know, it was that 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 level of of anxiety <laughs> around thinking I've just got one chance, one shot at this. I didn't like that at all. And the only way that I could I could feel comfortable once I got on the stage was thinking, this I'm talking about play. I'm talking about something I'm really passionate about. And it actually felt when I was on the stage that I was improvising, even though of course I wasn't, you know, I, I'd memorize exactly what I was going to be talking about. But when I was actually on the stage, I was like, I, I don't want this to sound like it's scripted. I want it to sound like I'm being really playful. And this, this is just right at the, you know, on the tip of my tongue all the way throughout. And I'm going to invite people to play with along with me, which, which you, you probably saw. So, uh, yeah, yes, it was a great opportunity. I'm just reading Dave Grohl's book, um, Guy from the Foo Fighters, and he talks about being invited to the White House. Now, he he's, turns out he's friends with Paul McCartney, and he said, you know, we invited him and his wife, invited Paul over for dinner, and he was teaching my daughter to play the piano. But he said, I had the honour of... Um, playing with Paul's band, but being there all on my own to perform for Paul McCartney, who was being honoured by Barack Obama. And he said, mm -hmm. I initially thought that we were going to be performing to the president and the guests with me and Paul. And then they said, no. He said, well, where's Paul going to be standing on the on this st stage with me? And he said, no, he's going to be sat with the president. You're going to be performing <laughs> to him. And he said, he, he said, you can't imagine that the most important, you know, person in the in the free world the western world the present the u.s yeah. and the, the man that you most admire in musical history i sat there in front of you and you're on your own and and Whoa. he like you he said i was so nervous and then just before i went on i thought you know what instead of thinking why am i here and getting that imposter syndrome i'm going to think i am here and they've asked mm. me to do this and this is what i wanted to do this is fun this is what mm, I'm all about. Mm, and he said, mm. at that moment, a calm descended over me and all the nerves mm. went. And he said, I was just doing what I wanted in the environment I wanted with the people I wanted. And he said, and how many times do you get that in your life? Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah, exactly. If you if you met me the day before my talk, the night before, I did a dress rehearsal and I was just like, oh, my goodness, I don't know if I'm ready, ready for this. And I got the thumbs up from the organizers, like, oh Daryl, that was oh, that was that was incredible, that was superb. And I was like, oh no, I'm still, I'm still not feeling it. I didn't sleep at all, pretty much the night before. 
And then I did another dress rehearsal the following morning. And I was like, oh, you know, that was, that was a bit stiff. I was like really rigid. I was like, it was felt so scripted. And yeah, I had that, I had that same sort of moment of like, hold on a second. <sighs> this is you, this is why you're here. This is your moment. Uh, just relax and, and improv if you have to. <laughs> and then that was it. I was like, it just, it just worked. It worked really well. So, so it's difficult when you have to impress the people in front of you, but you've also got to try and impress the online audience who will see it afterwards. Um, and it's interesting because some of the, some of the people who were speaking on the, on the day, there were some people who completely smashed it in the auditorium but it didn't track, you know, you watch it online and mm. there's a, there's a disconnect. You, you, you don't connect in the same way. It's really interesting. That was also something I hadn't, I hadn't kind of uh, fathomed before that experience. Uh, but, um, but yeah, I hope you get to, to tick off that off the bucket list. Well, um, I'm not going to, to finish this part of the episode, Daryl, I'm just going to tell everybody the title of your TEDx talk was why working out isn't working out. Yeah. And yes. we'll leave it at that. And what we'll do is we'll put a link in the show notes and we'll let people go and listen to it and make their own mind up, eh? rather than sort of um, providing them with that. So, Daryl, th- thanks for being on the show today. We're gonna ju- you're going you're gonna to come back and we're going we're gonna to do the second part where we're going to talk about your daily routine, how you walk the walk as well as talk the talk, what are the lifestyle choices you've made, and crucially, you're going to give us some real insider tips on how we can all get started integrating primal play into our daily lives and i'm really excited about that so thanks for now see you soon simon thanks to daryl for being on this week's show there are links to most of what we discussed in the show notes below and that's all for the moment i know i say this every week but i really do appreciate you listening to the high performance human podcast i know there's lots of podcasts out there that you could listen to so it means a lot that you choose to listen to this one you can join the conversation today by subscribing for free on iTunes and then you'll never miss an episode. And also, why not join our High Performance Human Podcast Facebook page? So that's it for this week. Daryl and I will be back in seven days' time. For now, please remember that High Performance Human has lots of moving parts. So follow Daryl's advice. Just keep moving and have some fun. <laughs>